You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Inverlift, the podcast. This is episode 257 called Sarah Heron. Okay, guys, before we get started, in case you haven't heard, I wrote a children's book about IVF and I'm so excited about it and I would love for you guys to check it out. It's called Work of Art and it's the story of Sonny, my eight-year-old now, the day he learned that he was a work of art born via IVF and assisted reproductive technology. It's about secondary infertility. It's about how much I love being a mom to my daughter ever and why I wanted to have another baby so badly. It's about loss. And of course, this is all palatable for kids because it is a children's book. It's for young readers, ages four to eight. It's a hardcover book. It's beautifully illustrated by Fed Bonificini. And I would love, love, love for you guys to check it out. So um, there's two different versions of the book. There is a limited edition, personalized, numbered copy available for you. And I have about 20 of those left. I'm only doing 200. And then there's a regular version of the book. The personalized copy includes shipping in the US and the non-personalized copy does not include shipping, but it's only about $4 in the US. So just wanted to let you guys know that work of art is out there and I'm super excited about it. Check out my Instagram if you want to see some photos of it and some of the illustrations and some more info and definitely go to infertileafgroup.com slash books if you guys want to pick up a copy. Thanks so much. All right. My guest today has such a big heart. I immediately fell in love with her, talking to her. It's Sarah Heron, who you guys probably know and love from The Bachelor. She's a Bachelor alum, and she's done many other amazing things as well. And today, she is going to tell us all about her family building story. So we're going to start out with what she knew growing up, sex education-wise, and kind of what she didn't know, which is a common theme on this show. She's going to talk about she and her husband, when they started to try, what happened. She's going to talk about finally getting pregnant via IVF, and then she's going to talk about the devastating loss of their son, Oliver, and what happened there, navigating grief and where they are today. So she is such a sweetheart. She's so well-spoken about all of this. I had the best time talking to her, and I just adore her. So Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really hope you guys like this one. It is impossible not to love her. So without further ado, this is Sarah's infertility story. Sarah, how are you today? Thank you so much for doing this. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to me be too. here and connect with your community. Same. I was just telling you before we started recording that everybody I've talked to who's met you is like, she is so lovely. She's such a sweetheart and so outspoken and, you know, just really wants to shed light on everything, you know? So I'm really, really happy that you're doing this. And thank, thank you again. You. Of course. So I always like to start with, did you always want to be a mom? 
<laughs> Great question. I wouldn't say like I didn't – I did or didn't. I think it was one of those things for me that I actually didn't know. I just didn't know which direction I felt until I was about 31 or 32 years old. Mm-hmm. Maybe even still then I was just kind of like, I don't know. I'm really enjoying life. I I don't know if I really see it right now, like maybe in the future. And then – lockdown happened and Dylan and I were like, you know what? It would be really fun to (laughs) have kids. And because we were like, we have this dog that we go out adventuring with and like, we just have so much love for him. And it's so awesome spending time with our dog. Like imagine how awesome it would be with a family. And so I think that was kind of the light bulb that went off was like pandemic lockdown. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, we should have kids. (laughs) Right. And were you and Dylan on the same page with that? Like you guys always want to have a family and grow a family? Okay. Yeah. We were, I mean, like I was kind of surprised because at the time we weren't even engaged yet. And so I went to him and I was like, look, I think this is like what I want to do. And I want to know if you're down or not. And, you know, we've talked about how fun it would be, but like, maybe we should take it seriously. And would you want to try? And he was like, yeah, sounds fun. <laughs> and that yeah. was, it was like <laughs> off to the races. Um, I love it. You're like, yeah. what else do we have to do? We're locked down. Yeah. Like, we can't go anywhere. We can't really see anybody. Yeah. Okay. So tell me what happened. Like once you guys started to try. Yeah. So like I said, we were like, let's do this. And we spent, well, I, I'll back up because we immediately went and had a preconception doctor's appointment with my OBGYN because- Ooh, smart. Um, yeah. We just knew like, I I guess so I was 33 at the time, 30, 33 or 34. And and I kind of had an idea it might be difficult for me to have kids. My mom struggled. Um, she she suffered through many, many miscarriages. Oh, and I'm so sorry. Thank you. Yeah. And and I I was her only um her only pregnant or like her only live birth child mm-hmm. that she had. And okay. so I knew it was like given my mom's history, it could be difficult for me, but I didn't really know mm-hmm. the extent. And so I was like, let's just go chat with um my OB and see what she says. And she was like, yeah, give it a go for six months. You know, so typically women 34 and up, we want you to try for six months on your own. And if you don't have any luck, come back and do fertility testing. Okay. So, so it sounds like you had a pretty good idea about the age, you know, around like 35 and all that stuff. Like I didn't know any of that when I was going through it. I was, I always say like, I was so completely clueless and I'm like embarrassed how yeah. little I knew about my body and my fertility. Did yeah. you know, what was your fertility like education growing up, like sex ed and all that? Like, what did you know about getting pregnant and fertility in general? Nothing. I mean, nothing. Like I, I'm a millennial. We're from the generation where like they really didn't teach us anything. It was like a class in fifth grade where they're like, here's how to put a condom on a banana. Totally. And and, like, (laughs) I knew that you need a sperm to fertilize an egg. And I knew that like, that was it, you know, and my generation, we all got put on birth control in eighth grade. I don't know if that's normal where everyone else lives, but like really super, super early, like as soon as we got our periods, we were put on um, birth control. It's like a town mandate or something. Or it was, you know, kind it was of just like, like yeah, it just what everybody like did. A social thing. It was mm-hmm. like, well, if all my girlfriends are getting on birth control, I want to be on birth control too. And wow. 
the moms did it. And yeah, I mean, like young, you know, and mm-hmm. I I look back on that and I'm like, that probably, <laughs> probably wasn't good for me, but we didn't know any better right. back then. Our moms didn't know any better. So that was the extent of my knowledge. Right. And, and then I was on birth control all the way until I was about 28 years old. Okay. Came off. And then I'm like somewhat, I've never been pregnant. I mean, aside from my one pregnancy with um, my son, Oliver, mm-hmm. never been pregnant before, never mm-hmm. like, and the, and so that kind of was like in the back of my head when Dylan and I decided to start trying, I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never even had any like close encounters. I've never mm-hmm. had any scares. I've never mm-hmm. been pregnant. So this might be interesting for me. And then I started learning, oh, it's actually really difficult to get pregnant and it has to come down to a very precise moment of the month every month. Totally. Um, And I just started to learn like how difficult it was. Right. So when you guys went in and did the initial testing, what did you find out? What were the results? She was able to pretty much diagnose me with diminished ovarian reserve on the spot. Um, wow. we, we did the blood work and then she did like the follicle count and a pelvic ultrasound. And immediately she was like, you have diminished ovarian reserve. I know that's not what you were hoping to hear. Mm. Um, here's some pamphlets on IVF. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really scary and felt very cold. And I just, I'm like, I went from one minute, like my boyfriend and I are daydreaming about having kids to being told Mm -hmm. I have to do IVF. And it all just felt very jarring and totally like kind of like the, but this isn't what happens to me. This is what happens to you when you're like in your forties and Mm -hmm. I'm not there yet. And I just had never even considered it. So it was really, really scary. So what did you know? I mean, just hearing that, that term diminished ovarian reserve, like, were you like, what is that? Like, I mean, did you have to go to like Dr. Google and, you know, figure it all out? Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I immediately started crying in her office, mm-hmm. and I did, of course, go home and Google it. But I'm, it just mm-hmm. felt like feels like the garage door is coming down on you. You just like it. It feels the term feels so heavy, and like you have you're just all of a sudden like this decrepit, dried up old lady, and oh my God. I didn't understand it. That's such a good analogy. The garage door coming down on you. I've never heard that, Sarah. I love that. I've never heard that either. I just said it. (laughs) You just coined it and it's it's really good. It's so true though. You're right. Yeah. And so of course it it just felt like my world is over. Like it was so traumatizing when Mm. I first found out. And and, uh, now, you know, like I'm not, I'm like, oh, so many women are affected by it and it's not the end of the world, but like I, to a, you know, a, a young woman in her of course. early reproductive years, it definitely felt like it at the moment. Absolutely. So yeah. did you and Dylan go home that day and talk about IVF and like, what were the next steps for you guys as a couple? Yeah. We immediately started talking about it because uh, we had like all the pamphlets and we we're like, okay, I guess you know, I felt really bad. I felt like, is he not going to want to be with me now? Like, we're not even engaged. Like, if I can't, if it's going to be a long road to try and have kids with me, like, maybe he won't want to stay. That's such a valid concern, right? I think so many of us think that, like, if I'm not going to be able to do this, do they want to be with me, you know? Yeah, Yeah, because it's like we hadn't really made those 
mm-hmm. lifelong commitments yet to each right. other. And so, um, but surprisingly or not so surprisingly, he was like, okay, well, let's, let's start having some consultations and see what it entails. So we did have a few cu- couple consultations. We figured out how much it was going to cost and we decided to just like set our financial threshold and mm-hmm. move forward with what we could and just see where it got us. Yeah. Um, Did you guys have any coverage or anything like that? Insurance? Zero. No. Uh, Dylan Same. and I are both, we're freelance creatives. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we pay like <laughs> Medicaid essentially. And yeah. uh, there's no fertility coverage with that. No, not at all. Yeah. yeah. So what did you get? Were you shocked when it was like sticker shock when you saw the price? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just, I kind of knew growing up, we had a family friend that did IVF. And so like I had this idea even from a young age that like fertility and IVF is like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I knew it was really high, but I think when you're delivered, especially a lot of clinics are, it's weird to me. Like they're like, here's our package. Buy three, get one free. Or like if you sign, if you buy three egg retrievals and you only need one, we'll refund you for the other two. It just felt so transactional and weird to me. And and you're like, you're selling egg retrievals in a package. It's so strange. But I'm but then you're like, oh my God, like ninety thousand dollars? Like I I know <laughs> don't yeah. can't even wrap my head around that. I remember my husband coming home when he went in, because I went in first alone to the doctor, like the reproductive endocrinologist, and then he went separately. And was just like, I felt like it was like a used car salesman, like the way mm-hmm. that they were like shuffling this paperwork around, but not being super transparent. And it was yeah. like, like you said, like bundling this and that, you know, it's just like, it's such yeah. a weird, I think that it's, I mean, depending where you go, obviously, like there are clinics out there that are very transparent. I think that's more of a, the trend now for like new clinics that are opening and stuff, which is good. But like, I mean, when you get shoved that paper and you just see all these numbers, it's like, ah, what is happening? Yeah, totally. And you're just like, okay, well, it's it takes a long time to to you can spend that. You might have it in savings, but then like to replenish that, you're just like, oh my God, it's gonna take like 30 years to save this back up. hundred um, percent. Yeah. yeah. So that was tough, but we so that's what helped us kind of be like, okay, this is what we're comfortable. And of course, we kind of like overshot and then we came back down and found this like medium area of like, well, Mm -hmm. this is what we're comfortable investing Mm -hmm. towards it. And then when we reach that ceiling, like we're done, we have to move on. Yeah. Yeah. Were you guys kind of on the same page about that financially too? Because I feel like that's a hard one to sync up sometimes. It is hard. We weren't on the exact same page. Of course, I was like, let's like, I'll spend $200,000. And then Dylan kind of had to bring me back down to earth and was like, we can't put our whole life savings into this. Like, what if you have nothing at the end? And Mm -hmm. um, so he was a little bit more of the voice of reason and we met in a happy medium. And we've been very aligned on that ever since. Like at first I was like, what if I don't, what if I want to keep going for it? But I don't know, after years, we're jumping ahead now, but like after years and years of treatment, you also start to kind of, you're like, I can't keep chasing this forever. Totally. Okay. So tell me what happened when you guys started treatment. Yeah. So we did, we went ahead with our first egg retrieval with Dr. Amy in the Bay Area. I know. Love her. So many women in your community are either patients of hers or fans of hers. Mm -hmm. And she was amazing. We found out, she encouraged us to do pre 
genetic testing. And mm-hmm. we actually found out that Dylan and I are both carriers of cystic fibrosis. Okay. And we had no idea. So this complicated matters um, mm-hmm. because now we're dealing with like difficulty creating embryos and they're all like one quarter of them are all going to be affected by cystic fibrosis. Uh-huh. It was kind of like a blessing in disguise that we found out through the testing and early enough on. And um, so we did our first egg retrieval. We were very lucky. Um, I mean, for diminished ovarian reserve, had like very high attrition rate from my eggs, high fertilization rate. Sorry, I guess I'm saying that backwards, but like most of my eggs fertilized, most of them turned into blasts. And then we still lost about like honestly, like two thirds of them to the cystic fibrosis PGTM testing. Mm. Um, so we went through with three rounds of egg retrievals and banked our embryos before starting our transfers. Actually, that might be out. I think we tried one transfer and it didn't work. And so Dr. Amy was like, I think we should bank a few more mm-hmm. just in case, um, mm-hmm. in case you do get pregnant. And then it's like, years from now and you want more. Right. So we did, we did, a f- we did three retrievals total. Um, okay. To bank our embryos. Okay. And what happened after that? So once we had banked all of our embryos, we felt good moving forward. There were a few things like Dr. Amy wanted me to test for endometriosis um, because I had had the failed implantation the first time. So I did end up having a laparoscopic excision for endo. Like I swear, it was, we opened Pandora's box because then it was like, oh, and now you have endometriosis. And right. Did you have any idea about that you had endo? Like did you have any no. painful periods or was it more like silent endo? It was or? definitely more silent. And they, okay. they only ended up diagnosing at stage one. So like it was kind of one of those things where it wasn't nothing, but it wasn't enough to be like, this is the reason you mm-hmm. have diminished ovarian reserve. So it was just totally. kind of like, I don't know. Um, but it was good because regardless, got it out of there, moved forward, I think the next month with a transfer and it stuck. And that was our pregnancy with our son, Oliver. Mm-hmm. And we felt incredibly lucky because we're like, this is second transfer. We're so lucky. And I had a, an amazing pregnancy aside from the fact that <clears throat> the same day I found out I was pregnant, I broke my leg. So, oh that, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. I remember seeing, like, hearing about that or reading about that. And yeah. oh, look at your dog in the yeah. background. <laughs> so come cute. hang out. So that was kind of a doozy because. How did you break your leg? Walking the dog. Uh, yeah, love, love. Speaking my dog. of, he just came in and was like, yo, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> yeah, you're about to talk about me. Um, I was walking him and I tripped on a curb, oh like gosh. classic, like no big story, nothing dramatic. Mm-hmm. Tripped mm-hmm. on a curb, smashed my knee into the sidewalk. And so that was literally an hour after finding out I was pregnant. And so we like went to the ER and they were like, well, we can do x-rays, but like we can't do surgery. You can't even take Advil. Like it was so horrible. So I had to be on bed rest for six weeks. Oh my Um, gosh. Regrowing bone because I couldn't take anything. And it was the most excruciating pain of my life. So. Oh my God, Sarah. Yeah. So, but Ugh. you know, I like what got me through it was like knowing I was pregnant and mm-hmm. I bought all the pregnancy books and I was just reading all day and mm-hmm. just feeling so elated and and excited to be pregnant. It helped me like get through the 
through the recovery of breaking my knee. <laughs> right, right. You're like, I'm going to cram and like yeah. learn all the stuff and read all the things. And yeah. um, well, you know, I, I know that that pregnancy did not end as planned, right? So can you tell yes. us a little bit about that as much as you're comfortable sharing, of yeah. course? So then we lost our pregnancy mm-hmm. at just shy of 25 weeks. I was about- So incredibly sorry. Thank you. Yeah, I was- I think I was like 24 and five days and, mm-hmm. and it was of course, nothing we could have ever anticipated or seen coming, you know, with the PGT M testing that I mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, it's like, here, we thought we had this perfect grade a embryo. It had no chromosomal abnormalities, no DNA issues. And he just got struck by lightning. You know, it's just like you worked mm-hmm. so hard to create this perfect embryo. And and I think that was like the real reckoning we had to have with IVF is like for many months after is just like everyone knows IVF isn't a guarantee. It's just a shot. And it's a shot at having a pregnancy. And so I think that was just kind of like how did this happen? You put so much money and time and resources into like creating this pregnancy and in a blink of an eye, it's gone. And so that was in January of last year. Mm -hmm. And I think what was like so hard about it was that, you know, I think a lot of women early on in their pregnancies, you kind of anticipate, okay, one in four pregnancies and in miscarriage for that first trimester, you're kind of like, you're like holding your breath to get Mm -hmm. through the first trimester. And then Mm -hmm. you make it to the second trimester and you kind of stop worrying about it. And what I was never prepared for, because why would I be, was that like I was still going to now experience the postpartum of having delivered a baby but not bringing the baby home with me. And so I was just Mm – my body was like catapulted into, you know, my milk came in and I had mm-hmm. to deal with the breast engorgement and bleeding that lasted for nine weeks. Like it, it just was the most traumatic thing to experience all that because like I, I had no idea. I didn't know how to prepare for any of that. I didn't know. Right. Of course. I'm so, so incredibly sorry for your loss. And you know, I know, I'm sure it's not easy to talk about it, but, you know, like I said before, one of the things I think is so wonderful about you as just a human is sharing your story and you know how many people you're helping by putting this out there. And, you know, like there's a lot of people that probably see you talking about it and are like, that's the only other person I know that's gone through something like this. So to have those connections, yeah. I think is really, really powerful. Tell me about you and Dylan, like getting through that next chunk of time. I know grief is not linear and I'm sure it's still really painful, but the immediate kind of aftermath, how do you navigate that? We fortunately live in an amazing community where like everyone just came together. They shared resources. They put us in touch with the right people. We immediately started working with a grief counselor that lives here in our town. We um, were going to see my therapist together and individually. We I mean, like any big loss, like it it interrupts your life completely. Um, right. And so you kind of just dedicate your time into grieving, into mourning. And I'm really grateful that we were able to see the grief counselor together mm-hmm. and be able to process. And I don't know, you know, I'm not even a year out mm-hmm. yet. And 
I have so many thoughts about like, let's see. So it was end of January. And then like Mm -hmm. by February, you know, I was like trying to pull myself together and go visit friends because I thought I needed to like snap out of it. And looking back on it, I part of me is just like, oh, I wish someone had just like, I just wish I didn't try to like snap out of it so fast. Mm. I just wish I had like taken up more space. Mm. <laughs> I took up a lot of space, but I just wish I had no, that's more permission that like it's okay. Like this is going to take a long time. Like you don't have to snap out of it in February. You don't have to snap out of it by June. Like you are allowed to grieve and take up this space for as long as you need. And so that's my only like regret is I just kind of look back on the year and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I just tried to be too okay too fast. That's such a good way to put it. And thank you for saying that because I think you're right. I think we're just conditioned, especially as women to, you know, just kind of, you know, carry on, move on, keep going, keep going. And it's so important when you go through such a devastating loss and traumatic experience that, like you said, taking up space and giving yourself that grace, you know, I don't think that we're inherently taught that we're able to do that. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's just not part of, I guess the human existence. And hopefully now it is more and more like people talking about it and, you know, things like this, but. Well, like, I I mean, I even think about, I think we try to like make other people more comfortable because people Mm. are experiencing and witnessing someone else's grief makes you uncomfortable. And so, Mm -hmm to be the person who's grieving, like, you're like, well, I guess it's my job to make you not uncomfortable. And, you know, right after losing Oliver, I kind of like gave away a lot of my baby things to friends that were having babies because I was like, well, I don't need this. So like, I'd rather you use it. Mm -hmm. And I've recently started like recollecting those things back because I'm like, you know what? Like, just because my baby isn't here doesn't mean I need to like make everyone else comfortable or mm-hmm. keep, like, cater to everyone and be this good doer of good deeds. Like, I can keep my baby stuff in boxes in my garage as long as I need to. I don't need to like be this vigilante for everyone else. Right? Totally. Now. That's yeah. such a good point. Yeah, absolutely. So can you, do you mind sharing some of the resources or just things that really helped you get through that, that time period, you know, and, and things that you might still be leaning on or using Were there like specific like books or you said the grief counselor, like things along those lines that people mm-hmm. who are listening might be able to walk away with? Yeah. I think for me, the biggest one was Facebook groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I, because I don't know anyone who was in, who had been in the same shoes as I had been, it was easier to just like connect with strangers on the mm-hmm. internet and read their stories, whether it was yeah. like it gave me hope or it just made me feel connected and not so alone. So that really helped. I also, I, for the first time in my life, I got pretty spiritual. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't mean in a religious sense, although that happens for some people, but I just really leaned into spirituality spirituality, and trying to connect with spirit and um, meditation. So I went on a yoga retreat to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that was a great resource. And I mm-hmm. just, there was a lot of books. I know there's a lot of common ones that people all read together, but yeah, I don't know. For me, it was kind of just like the Facebook groups and going on a yoga retreat and yeah. just like tapping into consciousness really helped mm-hmm. me. So yeah. 
when did you and Dylan start talking about kind of, you know, next steps and obviously still, you know, you still want to grow your family and, you know, I know everybody's story is so inherently different depending on what happens. When did you feel like it was the right time to, to kind of try again? Mm -hmm. So we moved forward with another embryo transfer in June and I think, you know, we felt ready. It took my body a long time. I had retained products of conception. So mm-hmm. I had to have surgery to remove placenta. That mm-hmm. was that was like nine weeks after delivery. And so then I had to recover from that. So it was a long like physical recovery yeah. um, before I was ready. Emotionally, you know, I thought I was ready in June. So we did the transfer. Hindsight, I don't know if I really was emotionally ready. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't take. I'm so and sorry. Then, yeah, that was tough because we didn't even have implantation. And so now I was like, how did it go from like pre- – you? we mm-hmm. also kind of jumped into it thinking like, I'm just going to get – it's going to work. Like it worked with Oliver. I'm just going to get pregnant mm-hmm. right away again. And it mm-hmm. didn't. So that was like a huge splash of water in the face. Mm-hmm. And then um, transferred again in October, same thing no implantation. And so now we were kind of like really at this crossroads of like, oh God, we don't have any euploid embryos left. Mm -hmm. And now we're not even having implantation, like what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So we decided to, we're going to move forward with another egg retrieval. (laughs) Okay. And that is, that's where you guys are at now. Yes. So that brings us up to today. And okay. Yeah, so we're gonna um, we're gonna do another egg retrieval. We two, we have two mosaic embryos, and we're gonna transfer those at the same time as long as everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. And that is like kind of it's kind of like our our hail mary. We'll see we'll see what we get from the retrieval, but this is the ceiling that we talked about, and we're like, mm-hmm. man, we're here, and mm-hmm. we're also okay with it being the last time. Like it will mm-hmm. take its own season of grieving and mourning and closing the chapter on IVF if that's what we do but mm-hmm. we're also kind of like ready. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. emotionally very very taxing as anyone knows and I just I don't know. I'm not someone that is cut out to do this for 7 to 10 years. I know mm-hmm. many warriors who can. I'm I think I'm at my 3-year mark and I'm like I, mm-hmm. I got like another another quarter of a mile left in me and then and then I'm done with yeah. it. I think it's so incredible, Sarah, how you are able to recognize that and like have the self-awareness because I think that it's so hard. And so many people I've talked to over the years, you know, doing this show. Um, and I was kind of like it too. It was like blinders on, get to the, mm-hmm. you know, get to the goal that you want. And not to say that that goal can't change as, yeah. you know, like, and you're obviously people are entitled to change their mind based on what's happening. But you know, I think it takes a lot of guts and honesty with yourself to realize like, okay, this is the limit Mm -hmm. for my mental health, for my relationship, for my rest of my life, you know, all that stuff, you know, to, I never want to ever, ever say the term giving up because I don't see it that way at all, but to pivot or to walk away or to take a different path, you know, for, people that have decided to stop doing treatment or stop doing IVF specifically. So I I just want to commend you for being, to having that self-awareness because I don't think it's easy. And I think societally too, like you have that pressure of like, people are like, oh, just keep going. It'll work if you just keep trying, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. But 
I think unless someone's walked in your shoes, especially everything that you and Dylan have been through, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 hard to pass judgment on your decisions. That's your decision to make, not anybody yeah. else's. Right. Thank you. And I do also want to acknowledge, like, I talk to a lot of women who, like, I've, I've, I've shared sentiment with people where I'm like, but I have only been doing it for three years and women do it for like 10 years. So like maybe something's wrong. Maybe I need to keep fighting. And I think as I've talked to other women, we're like, no, we're all at different stages. Like you might be someone that's also like, I could only, I only could do it for a year. Like, and that's fine. There's no difference like in deservingness or desire. Mm-mm. If you're someone that can fight for one cycle or 15 cycles. Like Mm -hmm. we just all have a different capacity. And so like honoring that and knowing when it's time for you to tap out of this, of at least this method Mm -hmm. of trying to start your family is totally fine. And I feel very grateful and lucky that I got to be pregnant and I got to deliver my son. And yeah. And like you know, if none of this ends in another pregnancy for me, at least I can always say I was pregnant. I didn't have the labor and delivery of my dreams, but I yeah. experienced it. And it's something that I can, you know, talk about with other women. And I'm grateful for what I did have with Oliver. And we'll just see where the path unfolds the rest of the way. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that's really, really amazing. And, you know, I just... I also want to ask, I guess, about being in the public eye. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, obviously knows and loves you from The Bachelor and other things as well. You know, you've done some really cool things just publicly and you've been very open on your social media. How do you know, like, what to share and what not to share? And was it ever like a discussion between you guys, like, maybe we shouldn't go there? Or was it always kind of like, I'm an open book? Or has it changed as things have happened? Well, I think. Dylan pretty much always knew that I share everything. So like when we started, he was like, yeah, this is going to be no different. And so, but yeah, like when we had the transfer in June after losing Oliver, that time we decided let's keep this one private. Let's not share publicly. Let's see what that feels like. And truthfully for me, it felt kind of disorienting because sure, I might have like followers, but I don't view my community that way. Like I truly view my community as like my resources and my support. And, and I know some people might have a hard time grasping it that, you know, they're strangers, but I'm like, I feel more connected to a lot of the people that I talk to on Instagram than some of my immediate friends. hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) So when I didn't share, I was kind of like, I don't know. I feel like I miss my community and I want to talk about it with them. Mm Mm-hmm. So now I think since then I've tried to make it more of like a balance because also when you do share, like anyone who lets someone into their fertility journey is like when it doesn't work out, then you have to update them that it didn't work out and you have to mm-hmm. – you know, it's not always just like the fun anticipation that sometimes it's also the the hard news and, mm-hmm. and then that's difficult. So – I've tried to keep it like a healthy medium now, I think, of like mm-hmm. share what I feel is important, but I'm not doing the like day-to-day updates, which in the beginning I was. I was like, here's what everything means in IVF. And I was like, took it as my job to like educate people. And I right. do a little, little bit of that now, but mostly it's just like, I'll update you on the parts that feel important 
and the parts that, you know, I want to talk about and then the rest is kind of unwritten. Yeah. And when you were talking about before, you know, when people are doing going through this for one cycle versus seven years or 10 years or whatever, I think it's important to note. And I I feel like you're probably on the same page that like, we always say this isn't the pain Olympics. Like it's not like because you've been going through this for X time, it's worse than this or, you know, like comparing people's journeys, I think can get really tricky and sticky. And I just, you know, obviously you don't do that. And I thank you for that as well. Cause I think that, you know, sometimes people will email me, for example, and say, I'd love to share my story, but it's not very exciting or, you know, or like I haven't been through as much as some other people. And I'm always like, your story matters too. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be super dramatic. It's just, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to share as many stories as possible. And, you know, it doesn't have to be all over like a huge roller coaster. Cause I think this is hard no matter what. And it hurts no matter what, and it's painful no matter what. So just want to acknowledge that as well for people who are quote unquote, kind of like newer to the world, this world Mm -hmm. that it's still, you know, we see them and we see you. Well, a good resource for that actually is, so I'm obsessed with Brene Brown. I feel like I know all of her work is in the back of my head. And so Brene talks about the concept of comparative suffering. Yeah. If anyone who's listening, she has a great podcast episode on comparative suffering. I would go listen to it. It's like 20 minutes long, but Mm -hmm. essentially the, the concept is that compassion isn't finite. It's mm-hmm. not It's not a pizza pie where there's only so many slices of pizza to go around. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is infinite and there is enough compassion and empathy as we make space for. And so just because you feel like your story might not be as dramatic or mm-hmm. <laughs> exciting doesn't mean it's less deserving of having its slice of the pizza. Everyone's story is unique to their own. And it's just kind of this concept of like, your suffering is valid. 100%. Of what it looks like. And I hate to say suffering, but like, yeah, it's your story is valid and just like your experience of it, regardless of. Exactly. I like the pain Olympics though. That's a good analogy. It's true though. You know, it's like, yeah, exactly. I love Brene Brown. She was on, do you ever listen to Armchair Expert with Dax? Mm -hmm. She was on there. Oh, that was a really good episode. Yeah, I love Dax as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we wrap, Sarah, um, first of all, you know, I'd love to, you know, we'll keep seeing your, on your Instagram and what, what's happening as you guys move forward and everyone I know is rooting for you guys and holding space for you. And you obviously have such a big heart just talking to you now, like all of your, like, you're so well-spoken about all this, like your analogies and stuff. So I don't know why I'm like welling up. I just feel like, I just feel like when people are so truthful, it really resonates and I'm just really grateful. So thank you for that. But before we wrap, is there anything else that you kind of wish you knew at the beginning of your journey that you know now that you want to share with people? Yeah, 100%. I just always want people to know that if you go to the doctor and you get that same garage door slammed down on you that like <laughs> you have you have a female factor infertility, male factor infertility, something that is going to make having children more difficult for you, it's not the end of the road. And I just want everyone to know it can feel isolating. It can feel like you have to do this journey alone. But I have found more community, more connection, more storytelling through this amazing 
community. It like it truly is the worst club with the best members, <laughs> as they say. And mm-hmm. I feel I'm not happy to have diminished ovarian reserve, but I am so happy and proud to be a part of this community. And I think if you can just allow that component in, it will literally be your life raft in the sea of confusion and despair and just allow the community to be there for you. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to check out my children's book, which is called Work of Art, an IVF kid learns about assisted reproductive technology. It is out now. You can go to my website, which is infertileafgroup.com slash books and order either a personalized numbered copy or a non-personalized copy. They're both available. And if you do get one, make sure you post about it and tag me. I love to see them out in the world. Uh, The reception so far has been great and it really means the world to me that you guys are really liking it. I poured my heart into this and I just hope you love reading it as much as I loved writing it. So also check out Fertility Rally if you guys need a community or a safe space of people who get it. We are always open now membership wise. So you can go to fertilityrally.com and check out the membership options there, monthly, annual, whatever you need. Always reach out to me if you have any questions. You can DM me at InforLift Stories on Instagram, and I will talk to you guys next time. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.